0: talk is cheap. In a world of inflation, you might be thinking, nothing's cheap. Inevitably, a couple of times a year, I find myself in a squeeze. Pastor Jamie, my wife Cheryl, Penelope, none of them are ever surprised. I find myself where I can't get it all done. I find May and December are especially dangerous months. I find I've bit off more than I could chew. I've overcommitted and find myself in a huge time crunch, in a danger of getting it all done well. I'm like the dog that chases the oversized pickup truck. It stops at a, side, at, a tra- at a stop sign or a traffic light. He runs into the back and he realizes, I've caught this big thing I've chased. Now what in the world do I do with it? We have a proverb, talk is cheap. What does that mean? It means it's easier for us to flap our lips, to run our mouth, to come off big, to make bold promises, and there's not a lot of cost to that activity. Much more expensive, immensely more difficult is to be what we represent, to live up to our impressions, to have alignment between what we say we are and actually be what we say we are, a sense of alignment to faithfully deliver on our promises. How many dads trying to beg off of commitments to their children, have heard from their children, but you promised. But you promised. Talk is cheap. And we'll see that with Pharaoh over these coming weeks as we look at the 10 plagues. Well, when you begin reading this account, there's really no clue. There's no indication if you're reading from left to right, if you were reading this with the whole narrative unknown to you, there's no indication that the ten plagues are in store for Pharaoh. You know God is about to act. That's been ramping up. But you do not quite know the scale of his great acts of judgment. And the same could be said of the Ten Commandments. You and I, too, could, we, could not, we could never have predicted that number. As we look though at these plagues over the next several weeks, I also don't want you to worry for those of you that might have noticed that the account there in Psalm 105, as read earlier by Christopher, that neither the number nor the order match that in the book of Exodus. The 10-verse summary there in Psalm 105 in verses 27 through 36, it serves the purpose of God's saving acts on behalf of his people. It's illustrative, but it's not exhaustive. In Psalm 105, what the psalmist is doing is actually summarizing the 50-plus chapters of Old Testament history from Genesis 12 through Exodus 12, and he's doing it all in 32 verses, in about 32 verses. And I think we'd call that a modest sketch somewhere from the 30,000-foot view. And so here it is in Exodus 7 through 10 that we have this fuller story, the detailed chronicle of all 10 of the plagues. Now, just to caution for a moment, when you hear the word plague, you don't need to think of like the bubonic plague. Um, You don't need to think of maybe in the way even the coronavirus was described with the language of plague. I think this is where the King James, and its translation of that little word nagath, to strike or to smite is the idea. To strike or to smite is the idea. In effect, you could call this, not like baseball, three strikes and you're out, but the ten strikes. The ten strokes of God's judicious punishment of Pharaoh on behalf of his people. So in Psalm 5, it lists only eight of the plagues. The fifth and the sixth plagues are excluded. No mention is made of the plague that took the lives of all the livestock, of all the livestock, nor the boils afflicting both man and beast. This is not an error don't accuse of God messing up here in the inspiration of the Scriptures or Moses' record or the psalmist. It's not an error. Because in both the narrative and wisdom portions of Scripture, the writers are always exercising a selective process like any teller of history, any writer of history. It's true of Moses writing Exodus. It's equally true of the psalmist pinning Israel's history there in Psalm 105. Now, we can call this an epic battle, a cosmic clash of cataclysmic proportion. I mean, this is like, remember the Titans. And God is always, though, for his people. This is one of our lessons, our takeaways. We'll look this morning at five plagues, five strokes, five acts of smiting but we want to remember that God is always for his people. He always acts for and on behalf of his people. It's like the unfolding petals of a spring flower as we see this across the pages of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And like that, the apostles take on this note. That's why Paul asks, sort of, In Romans 8, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, what's the answer? (laughs) Who can be against us? Let's say it. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's right. And of course, Paul doesn't ask this question so he can wait on an answer. He's not a professor sitting at his desk tapping the eraser of his pencil against the desk while he waits on us to come forth with the correct response. He's given it. The answer is implied by the question. That's the nature of a rhetorical question. And really the question is a statement. No one, nothing, is against the Christian in such a way that we are snatched or that it's even possible that we could be snatched from the hand of the good shepherd. In fact, this is why the Son told the Jews that, in fact, the safety that he gave his sheep was the very evidence that he was the Messiah, the Christ of God. So he says this in John 10, verse 28, "'I give them eternal life. "'They will never perish.'" and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He will hold me fast. He will hold you fast. God is for his people, and he is against those who aren't. God is for his people. And just like the mother cannot forget the baby that is nursing at her breast, so will he never forget you, O oh, oh son or daughter of God. Well, let's look now, having set this context and thinking about God who is for us, even in the midst of these successive and heightening strokes, these plagues, let's see the nature of each of these first five plagues. So what were the first five plagues? And kids, I think this is great. It's a great assignment if you can begin to think about what these plagues were and what's going on, what is God doing. So let's first my my outline is very simple here. It's looking at the first five plagues and then learning from the first five plagues. A little bit more next week. I'm going to lay out exactly thinking about the structure of these, but I want to do it after we've started this study, so that I don't just uh, necessarily point you to what you might discover on your own. But I want you to think about if you see some similarities in the first through third plagues, and then four through six, and then seven through nine. Before that final, and uh, that final epic. Plague of the 10th, the Passover. So let's look together, the first plague. And you might remember from last week, we called verses 8 through 13 the prologue. And what Moses and Aaron heard from the Lord was that, look, you're going to have this opportunity to prove yourself. And he says, don't forget how I provisioned you. Don't forget that I told you what's in your hand. I asked you, what was in your hand? Don't forget your staff. And you're going to throw it down, right? You're going to throw it down. It's going to become a serpent. And just exactly as the Lord predicted, it happens. But here's what happens Moses and Aaron throw this staff down, okay? It becomes a serpent, but Pharaoh does the very same thing by summoning the wise men, the sorcerers, and the magicians of Egypt, and they do the same thing. And even though Aaron's staff, the one he throws down, swallows up the staffs of all the best of Egypt... We know what happened. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And that's no accident. We read still Pharaoh's heart there in verse 13 was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is not new. We were told of that in 421. We're told of that in chapter 7 and verse 13, uh, verse 3, we're told about that again here in verse 13 and so in response to that this begins the 10 plagues and we're going to look at the first five the Lord tells Moses Pharaoh's heart there verse 14 is hardened he refuses to let the people go and so the word is go right where he is right there at the Nile the pride of Egypt, a river 400 miles long of life-giving water as it flows from south to north and spreads out in an 80 to 100 mile wide delta, a ribbon so lush and fertile of water that when you get just a couple of hundred yards beyond its banks either way, you would be in the middle of virtual desert the very pride of Egypt, he says, go, take in your hand, take that, and say one more time, let my people go that you may serve me in the wilderness. This is the message that the Lord gives to Moses and Aaron to deliver yet again to Pharaoh. But here's the word. Here's the word, but so far... You have not obeyed. That's the message. But so far, you have not obeyed. Well, what happens? The Lord says this. Look, you're going to know that I'm the Lord. You're going to know the Lord because all this life-giving water, this river, some of its oxbows, the pools, the streams... The majority, if not all of it, will be turned into blood. And the fish that you eat from the Nile will die. The life of the Nile will become the stink of the Nile. And what will happen as the Egyptians seek to dig beside the Nile to access water, which it appears that they did, as though they still were able, actually, to get water to drink, verse 24, the very pride of Egypt, the very life of Egypt, it's water. God is going to turn to blood. And look what, they say, look what it says in verse 20. It's very simple. They give this message. And it says simply in verse 20, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord Commanded. We saw that last week, chapter 7, verse 6. Moses and Aaron did so, they did just as the Lord commanded. But then, not just in front of Pharaoh, but in front of his servants, he lifts up this staff. It's difficult to tell here, is this Moses and Aaron, or is it Aaron? But the point is, they lift it up, and instantly the water in the Nile turns to blood. The fish die. The river stinks. The people weary of drinking water, they come to the point they're not able, there is no water unless they're digging. Apparently there's beside the Nile. Perhaps that was unaffected that they were able to tap groundwater to drink. And what we know is, for the whole nation, they live with this For seven full days now you can just read this but for the moment imagine driving tomorrow to downtown greenville and you go to falls park what's the river there the reedy is that the reedy river and you pull up and there's fish floating on it in its bright oxygenated red blood and you're asking hey what happened well, someone waved their rod over, and it turned to blood, and all the fish died, and it's, it's stinking to high heaven. Just imagine this for the moment for the whole nation of Egypt. And just like the Reedy River in Falls Park is like a diamond, it's a pride of place here for us in Greenville, so it was, and even more so, for Egypt. There's a second plague. I want you to think about this with frogs. Sometimes in Florida, there are places where frogs are trying to cross from one body of water to another. Maybe some of you have seen this. They'll try to cross the road to get from pond A to pond B to do whatever they need to do. And in the middle of the night, they get squashed all over the road. And so the Lord says again to Moses, and again, Moses is following the Lord. So he, you go into Pharaoh, say to him, look, let my people go that they may serve me. If you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. Okay? And what you're going to notice as you look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 15, in the second plague of frogs, is just for the moment, imagine... Everywhere in our sanctuary now, frogs hopping around, hopping off the seats onto the carpet. You open the door and as you open the door to go out, you squish three or four frogs under the door, between the bottom of the door and there. You go in to use the bathroom at the rear of the sanctuary and you flip the lid on the toilet and a frog jumps out. I mean, you just, the scene is that they're everywhere. But moreover, I want you to see this, what he says. He says, the Nile shall swarm, verse three, with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed. Now, who's honestly would say that would freak you out to have frogs in your bed? Would anyone say that'd freak you out? Okay, all right. Imagine that sticky, clammy feeling. You're sleeping and you're wondering, what's that cold, sticky feeling against my skin. It's, it's a Nile frog. They're everywhere. And he says in verse 4, the frog shall come up on you and on your people and all the servants. But what's unique is just like turning the Nile, the water of the Nile into blood, and God multiplying the frogs of the Nile, that they come out and literally fill up all the land, the space of the land, they're on the people. Look at that in verse 4. He says, they shall come up on you. Just imagine you're sitting there and we're talking after the service and you're having to continually swat frogs that are wanting to jump on you. You know, you, you, the scene is like something we can't imagine. Maybe some of you have dealt with mosquitoes. You have a sense of it. But just like turning the water of the Nile to blood, there's something that's shared here with the second plague, and that is that the magicians of Egypt, Pharaoh's magicians, we see in verse 7, were able to do the same thing by their secret arts and made frogs come up upon the land of Egypt. So what are we to deduce from that? What can we imagine? Well, what we can imagine is that if Pharaoh thinks that my magicians can turn the water of the Nile to blood, just like Moses and Aaron can do by the wave of their staff, if they can make frogs multiply and come up out of that Nile and fill the land, even the houses of the land, the beds of the land, the houses of the people, the houses of the servants. Look at this, even into your oven. Can you imagine opening your oven, ready to put the brownie tray in, and there are a couple of frogs like, jumped out, and you're thinking, boy, I'm glad I didn't preheat that oven. You can imagine the scene. But Pharaoh then would think erroneously that his God His magicians, his sorcerers, by their secret arts, were the equivalent of the God who would make himself known to them. But they aren't. But Pharaoh becomes desperate. Look what he says in verse eight. Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. Now look at the wisdom. That's in verse eight. He says, and if you'll do that, I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Look what Moses says, look. This is very wise and humble. He says, I tell you what, Pharaoh, you want me to plead for you, you tell me when you want me to do that. And then it's like when someone's on the faucet, someone's on the other end of the hose, you know, I turn it on, turn it off, not so much. He's saying, you tell me when you want me to tell God, to plead with God, to shut off the frog faucet, okay? And he said, tomorrow. And Moses says, be it as you say so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And it's a principle that we talked about last week that God is always moving to make himself known. And moms and dad, the application for us as parents is the one thing we want our children to find amazing is his grace and knowing him and that our children can say there's nothing better in all of life than but to know the God who made us. To say that this is eternal life, to know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so Moses does this. He cries to the Lord. Look there, verse 12. It says, And Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh that the frogs would go away the next day. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. They died. The houses, the courtyards, the fields. It says, They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. So even though the plague, the strike was over, there was still the outfall. There was still the consequence so that the heaps of frogs caused the land to stain. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart, verse 15, and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. I want to give us a quote here. I'd like to quote from Matthew Henry, who who comments on this second plague, the plague of the frogs, and how Pharaoh forgot his promise. Was this not the Pharaoh that said, if you'll take these frogs away, then I'll let you go and worship? He said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And the next day, this happens. The Lord stops the frogs from coming. But still, Pharaoh hardens his heart. He refuses to listen to them, to Moses and Aaron, and he doesn't let the people go. And this is what Matthew Henry says. He says, those who bid defiance to God in prayer, first or last, will be made to see their need of both. If you defy God and you defy prayer, at the end you'll see that you need both of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, that that is the frogs died, the frogs stopped hopping out of the Nile River, he hardened his heart. And Matthew Henry says, "Still, the heart is renewed by the grace of God, the thoughts made by affliction do not abide. That is, they do not remain. The convictions wear off. And the promises that were given are forgotten. Till the state of the air is changed, that is, the weather, what thaws in the sun will freeze again in the shade. What brings us to the third plague, and that is the plague of the gnats. When I was about 19 or 20, I worked west of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, on a surveying crew for a summer. And I would be the guy holding the rod where the, the guy on the instrument on the other end was, we were trying to read elevations on the stick I was holding. And I had to hold that rod very still. But west there of Fort Lauderdale, still being developed in Broward County, were swarms, unlimited swarms of gnats. And I'd be holding this rod, and the guy on the other end would be like, don't move it, stop shaking the rod, okay? In all these swarms, like the frogs in Egypt, these swarms of gnats were in my eyes and in my nose and in my ears. And if I opened my mouth to breathe, they would get between my teeth and on my tongue. It was a cloud of gnats that I could not escape. This is the scene, even in these short verses. Take that dust Of the earth. Think of that, what man was formed out of. And he says, Stretch your staff. There's God's means again. Stretch your staff. Strike, isn't that interesting? Strike the dust of the earth that it may become gnats on all the land. So Aaron does, he stretches his hand with his gnat, with his staff. He strikes the dust of the earth. And then there were limit, unlimited, irresistible, uncountable numbers of aggravating gnats on man and beast. And it says they became there in all the land of Egypt. But look what we read. This time, unlike the water to blood, unlike the frogs, we read that the magicians were unable to produce gnats by their secret arts. And look what the magicians say to Pharaoh. Here's a concession. This is the first time we've seen this. It says, this is the finger of God. But yet again, how does Pharaoh respond? How does he respond? But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. I want you to imagine for a moment a three-sided, like a pure, maybe something three-sided with a base. And you think of one side says, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Another plane says that God hardened, or that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And there's a third plane that says, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Don't see any of those as in contradiction with the other expression. It's just different ways of saying that Pharaoh hardened his heart and his hard heart was a result of God's judgment, his judicial punishment of Pharaoh for his disobedience, for his resistance in letting God's people go in violation of his direct Command. Well, there's a fourth plague, and that's flies. It seems to me that every time in summer, when we go to try to have a, like, just a a lunch on the side of the road, like on an interstate at a rest area or one of our state parks, inevitably, you show up, you don't see any bugs, but as soon as you pull out your food, what do you notice? Flies. And yellow jackets. Does anyone have the same experience? It's amazing. Just immediately, they're there. I don't know about you, but flies would bother me more than gnats. It's like from gnats to flies, I think I could handle the gnats. But maybe just a single gnat or a single fly in your house can make you quite unhappy. Have any of you ever had a buzzing fly that you're chasing around? Yeah, you understand. A single weightless fly can do something about your unhappiness as it's buzzing around and you're trying and your wife's like, there it is. And you swing and you miss it. I mean, you're like, oh, for a hundred on your swings. It's awful. Okay. You don't realize how slow you are. And by the way, they were faster in Kenya. I did not understand it. I'm telling you that it makes me understand why Kenyans win all those Olympics in the, in the running events. They were so, I could not kill a fly or a mosquito in Kenya to to save my life, okay. But here in Egypt, as this fourth stroke, this fourth smiting, this fly, swarms of flies. And I want you to notice, like frogs, chapter 8, verse 4, on your people. Like gnats, chapter 8, verse 17, gnats on man and beast. Look how personal this is. Is Look how inescapable this is. He says, I will send swarms, verse 21, of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And there were no sticky things that like bugs can stick to or those zapping type things. Some of you may have them around your house that kill bugs. The the houses are just like, filled with swarms, like you could just see them swatting back and forward. Even it says on the ground, like squish, there goes a couple more flies. It says also on the ground on which they stand. All right? But where weren't the flies? Where were there no flies? Look at this, verse 22, but on that day, At the threat of this plague, this stroke, he says, on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell. There'll be no swarms of flies shall be there. Why? The end of verse 22. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Remember, these are words that Moses and Aaron are to deliver. To Pharaoh and he says Moses and Aaron give this word to Pharaoh Thus, I'll put a division between my people and your people tomorrow this sign shall happen and look at verse 24 what God does what God says he does it says simply there's a lot of theology in this and the Lord did so for God talk is not cheap he does what he says And it says, and there came great swarms of the flies in the house of Pharaoh, and into his servants' houses. And the land, look at the language of this, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Look at Pharaoh's response. Okay, he capitulates. He doesn't even say, plead with the Lord to take away these frogs. He simply says, look now, he gets right to it, go, just go, verse 25, go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses is like, no, 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 we, we it wouldn't be right to do that here right before the Egyptians' eyes, we, that'd be a great personal risk for us. Because our offerings would be an abomination to the Egyptians. It shows actually kind of a unique respect. And so Pharaoh says, look, okay, verse 28. I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. But then he wants to negotiate. He puts a term, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Look at Moses. He doesn't argue. Look what he says. I'm going to go out. I'll plead with the Lord. The swarms of flies may depart. From you, from your servants, from the land by tomorrow. But you know what? Stop cheating, Pharaoh. By not letting the people of Israel go to sacrifice to the Lord. That's the one thing we're requesting. It's one demand. It's the one command of Yahweh for his people. So it says Moses, he does this. He goes out, he prays. And look at, as the result of Moses' intercession, verse 31, and the Lord did as Moses asked. Wow. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine the application to prayer here? If we all endeavored this afternoon to be very specific, to pray for some things. And we came back tonight and we said, hey, for whom has the Lord done exactly as you asked? And there were all these hands raised. Why ought we to be amazed by that, by the God whose ear is open to the cries of his people? Let this be instructive for us It says, he went out, he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked. But not surprisingly, right? Not surprising, the Lord removes the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from the people, and he said, look at this, not a single fly remained. Imagine that, not one, not one. But not surprising, Pharaoh hardens his heart, said, this time also look at that, and he did not let his people go. There's a fifth plague, and I want you to see the particular death involved now with this fifth plague, and that is all the livestock die. We don't know what they die from. But the command to Pharaoh is repeated, Right? The Lord says, go into Pharaoh, say again, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Let my people go so that they may serve me. If you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague. That's the only the second time we've seen that word plague. We see it in chapter 8 and verse 2, and now here, chapter 9 and verse 3. This plague will fall upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Some of you know I said that when we were in in, uh, Nairobi for a month, we saw all this livestock right outside the church. We saw pigs, sheep, goats, horses, cattle, donkey. Donkeys, all the time. We heard chickens, like roosters crowing through all the night, all right? But imagine just going outside now and they're all dead. And they're beginning to decay and bloat and and swell up and stink. The impact of this. And how dependent the people of Egypt were upon their livestock. But Pharaoh yet again resists the command of God. I can only imagine as Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they're thinking about the water of the Nile turned to blood, the frogs filling up the land, the gnats filling up the air, the flies and all of these alighting on man, the the gnats and the flies on man and beast. And He's like, surely he'll relent this time. But he doesn't. And he says, the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. That is, of course, contingent on Pharaoh's refusal. We must assume that we're not told here that he refused it, that he did. And so we read, and the next day the Lord did this thing. And all the livestock of the Egyptians died. But look, similarly to the flies, where the flies by this division were not, where the people of Israel were in the land of Goshen, Southeast of the heart of the the, the Nile Delta there. Also then, the livestock, look at this, not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. As not one fly remained, not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died, though evidently all the livestock of the Egyptians did. And what's Pharaoh's response? As he looked, he he was curious, verse 7, all ours died, and he was curious to see if God kept his word, and he discovered, no, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. And what was his response, yet again, to this great act of judgment on God's part? a hardened heart, and it says he did not let the people go. What are are some quick things we can learn from these five plagues? From God's judicial acts against Pharaoh, against the land of Egypt and the the Egyptians, just very quickly. And I want to give these to you as five. This is not long, just probably three minutes here. Number one, is that we must learn from God's acts with the plagues that he is the indisputable, sovereign king of the earth. That's him. We must learn from these plagues that God is the living God, is the indisputable, sovereign king of the earth. Sometimes... We laugh. Our daughter has to tell her firstborn that her firstborn is not the boss in the house. God is in charge and we're accountable to him. This is his world and we're living in it. And as we've heard many times, I read from Psalm 115, verses 2 and 3 Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm one fifteen, two and three. Paul asks in Romans nine, verse nineteen, right after he talks about Pharaoh, we'll look at this next week. He says, Who can resist his will? Ultimately you cannot you may break his law, but ultimately you cannot resist his will for this world. There are no accidents. Number two, not only is he the indisputable sovereign king of the earth, the greatest kings of the earth are still held accountable for their actions. And on the cusp of that very first plague, you see this there in chapter 17 and verse 16. On the cusp of that first plague where the Nile and all its waters will turn to blood. This word comes to Pharaoh. But so far, you have not obeyed. You have not obeyed. And the clear implication is that Pharaoh, like all the kings of the earth, from the smallest to the great, will be held accountable for their actions. And there's a third thing, and that is that God does not wink at sin and rebellion. Oh, pray for a soft heart. Some of you know that there is a progression as you read your Bible backwards from the book of Hebrews. I'm going to read this to you. In Hebrews, in chapter 3 and verse 15. In chapter 4 and verse 7. Today quoting from Psalm 95, which accounts recounts a moment in history in Israel's story from Exodus 17. Today, God is saying to you, he says to us through his word, he says to those of you who are not yet in Jesus Christ, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God is good, but he does not play. He does not sink, wink at sin and rebellion. I think sometimes we're so we're so desirous of saying safe things to others and not wanting to infringe on people's feelings that we shy from telling the truth of the Scriptures. God does not wink at sin and rebellion. We shall give account for every word we speak. Yesterday, last night, I had to make a phone call, and I realized I needed to talk to a brother and just apologize for a loose, for an unthinking, for an ungracious conversation I had with them. I was thinking, oh God, I hope he'll receive me, and he did with such graciousness. But I just reminded, God cares. He doesn't wink. He doesn't overlook evil. On the back of our Lord Jesus Christ were countless plagues, were countless strokes that our sin might be paid for. There's a fourth thing, and that is bad news. I've got bad news. Every heart is at his disposal. And this is not to say that God is cruel or arbitrary or capricious. He's not like a drill sergeant that just because he wants to be ugly says, you know, get down and give me 100 push-ups. And you're going to do them just because I want you to do them. That's not how our Heavenly Father is like. Or like a wicked ruler who might choose to employ a nuclear weapon on a whim. But it is to say what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And right behind that is another proverb that reveals just how the Lord is the sovereign ruler and judge of the heart. We read this in Proverbs 21 and verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. So the first four things. God is the indisputable sovereign king of the earth. Number two, the greatest kings of the earth are still held accountable for their actions. Number three, God does not wink at sin and rebellion. Fourth, bad news. Every heart is at his disposal. And here's our final point. Good news. Every heart is at his disposal. Your hard heart is not beyond the reach of God's outstretched hand. Your heart is not like the faucet in your half bath that your three-year-old granddaughter needs a stool to access. Your hard heart is not so hard not so diseased, not so far gone that he cannot give you a new one. This is the promise. This is the good news of the new covenant. He says in Ezekiel 36, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And now, hear the Hippocratic oath of the greatest cardiac surgeon ever Ezekiel 36 26. Here it is. And I will give you a new heart. And in a way that sounds eerily familiar and eerily similar to Isaiah 41.10, he says this, you shall dwell. You shall dwell. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. He's the indisputable sovereign king of the universe. every earthly king is accountable to him. He will never wink or nod at sin. The bad news is, the bad news is is that every heart is at his disposal. but the good news is exactly the same: your heart, my heart is at his disposal. And he's in the heart surgery business. But friends, maybe some of you think, man, I've been living with a hard heart for a long, long time. Cry to him. We haven't got to the point where Pharaoh's heart is changed, where he lets the people go. And he won't really do it until his hand's completely forced by the worst of all the plagues. But your heart is not so hard. Your rebellion is not so far. Your sins are not so wicked that he cannot save you. Paul said, when he saved him, he saved the chief of sinners. And if he can save the chief of sinners, he can save you. He can save me. Kids, you guys... Don't wait. What are you waiting for? Run. Like, run. Don't wait today if you hear his voice. Harden. Not your heart.